I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 11. Um, you know, I don't know about you, but I don't know anyone personally who has tried to climb Mount Everest. Uh, do any of you know anyone who's tried to climb or set that as a goal? Yeah, a few. All right, that's great. Um, I had a friend that climbed Mount McKinley, Mount uh, now called Denali, and um, he was with four friends, and all of them lost fingers and toes in that effort. Um, my friend, his brother lost all 10 fingers and all 10 toes. Um, and that was, that's a pretty high price to pay for a personal goal. The first 10 attempts to climb Mount McKinley were unsuccessful. It was in 1952, 29 years after the first attempt, that Sir Edmund Hillary uh, uh, finally made it, actually in 1953. And Hillary explained why he climbed and how he climbed, but he never described what he saw or what he felt. Uh, maybe he was speechless. I know I would be speechless if I had a view like that from... Uh, from Mount Everest. Well, all that to say that on these last three chapters of Romans, Romans 9, 10, and 11, it's like we've been looking at some very high theology. Uh, we've been challenged uh, on, on the top of a theological Mount Everest, if you will. And what we've seen as we look from the top is, you have it on your outline, Romans 9 is all about God's sovereignty. God's plan of salvation isn't about us personally. It's about God reclaiming all of his creation, removing sin and evil from it, and reestablishing its original order. And God gives us the opportunity to be a part of that plan. Romans 10 is all about our accountability before God for our choices. God's sovereignty doesn't take away our responsibility. And then finally, when we look down <clears throat> from that high place, we see that Romans 11, the first part of it, is all about humility. Neither Jew nor Gentile has anything to boast about before God. Jews have been temporarily broken off so that we could be grafted in. The rest of Romans 11, what we're looking at this morning, is all about worship. So let's read our passage, Romans 11, beginning at verse 28. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they, speaking of the Jews, are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. 
All I can say after that is, wow. That's God's word to us this morning. So the first thing we see in verse 28, you have it on your outline, number one is God's covenant, and that covenant is sure. You know, we define a lot of our relationships by contracts. If you have a cell phone plan, you have a contract. The cell phone company says, we'll provide you service if you pay us a a monthly fee. Uh, God's relationship with us is not a contract. It's a covenant. It's a covenant relationship. It's like a parent-child relationship. Uh, If your child fails to show up for dinner, uh, your obligation as a parent isn't canceled. Uh, Sometimes parents maybe wish it would be, but it's not. Uh, One person's failure doesn't destroy a covenant relationship. And so what that means is that God is faithful to his covenant even when we are faithless because he doesn't ever give up on us because it's a covenant relationship. So Paul writes in verse 28, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake, but as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. So Paul is still speaking to the Gentiles, and he's saying to these Romans that he's writing to, uh, to bring the gospel to them, the Jews became, as it were, God's enemies because they rejected Jesus. They rejected, they missed the promise that the patriarchs gave them, and the foundation of that promise of, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, because God chose men, the patriarchs, through whom he would carry out his covenant promises. And God says, I haven't gone back on that. I will keep those promises. The Jewish people got the old covenant, but they missed the new covenant. Every time we open the word uh, to study one of the covenants, and another word for covenant is testament. So when we study the Old Testament, we study the New Testament, the new covenant, we are looking at the promises of God that either in the old covenant point us to Jesus or in the new covenant are all about Jesus. Jesus. And so what that means is that uh, all Bible study, and this is on your outline, should end in worship. The, The purpose of Bible study is not just to make us knowledgeable, it's to change our lives. There's a British pastor a number of years ago named Martin Lloyd Jones, and he was addressing a controversy that Christians in his day were arguing about. And the controversy was whether or not Sherman's sermons should be packed with doctrine or should they be filled with practical application. And Dr. Lloyd-Jones said respectfully, and I quote, neither is the point of a biblical sermon. It's the goal of a lecture that you leave with a page full of notes. It's the goal of a motivational speech that you leave with a page of action steps. The goal of a gospel sermon is that you leave worshiping. That means there should come a time in every gospel message when the pen goes down and the eyes go up and we stop saying, Lord, look at all the things I have to do for you. And we start saying, God, look at who you are. Look at what you accomplished for me on the cross. That's the purpose of Bible study to transform our lives to be like Jesus. We talk about the importance of having Bible input, uh, Bible memorization. You should memorize God's word. But it's not just to have it in your mind. It's so that you can meditate on it 
Once it's in your mind, you can have it there. And that vision will change your life more than any practical application ever will. The second thing we see in these verses is that God's nature doesn't change. Uh, For God's gifts and his call, verse 29, are irrevocable. Malachi says, I am the Lord and I do not change. In Numbers 23, God is not a man, so he, should, uh, he does not lie. He is not a human, so he does not change his mind. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? God's gifts to Israel uh, and his calling of Israel can't be taken back or changed. Paul is saying that if it, it could be changed, then God would cease to be who he is in his nature, a God who does not change who is faithful to his promises. In the Amplified Classic Bible, verse 29 says, for God's gifts and his callings are irrevocable. He never withdraws them when once they are given, and he does not change his mind about those to whom he sends his grace or to whom he gives his call. So from our perspective, uh, we don't know exactly what God is doing with Israel and when it will happen, but and this is on your outline, we can worship even when we don't understand. We can and should worship even when we don't understand. Paul had unanswered questions. Uh, so I, I'm sure all of us have unanswered questions, things that we would say, Lord, we don't understand what you were trying to do. But we can all be confident that all this pain will be one day swallowed up in victory because of Jesus. That, that glory will lead us to joyfully praise God. Uh, just like Paul goes into these verses in Romans 11, and in, in that moment, I, I, I agree with Paul 100%. All the suffering of the world is not even worth being compared to the glory that will be revealed in, in all eternity for us. The next thing we see, number three on the outline, is that God's grace and mercy are always available in verses 30 to 32. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of the Jews' disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. And so like God promised to Abraham, all of the families of the world world will be blessed. The tragedy was that Israel became exclusive. That they failed to share the truth with the Gentiles. And they believed, it was a group called the Judaizers in particular, that you had to become a Jew before you could be a, a, a Christian. And that's why Paul, by the way, wrote the book of Galatians to deal with that particular issue. But God declared both Jews and Gentiles were separated from God by their sin. Uh, Romans chapter three, for all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. That meant that he could have mercy on all because of the sacrifice of Jesus. So we look at all that God's doing and we understand, and this is again on your outline, that all of God's works lead us to worship. Everything God does. It's not an accident that Paul ends his work with this uh, explosion of praise, if you will, coming up. It it demonstrates for us that God has done all that he's done to save us and to make us stand in awe uh, of, of his wonder, of his power. 
when you look at your salvation, you, you have to say, wow, God, this is amazing that you saved me. Back in Romans chapter nine, verse 23, Paul writes, what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, that's us, whom he prepared in advance for glory? In other words, what if the old covenant and the new covenant and the hard parts and the easy parts, all of it, were to make us stand amazed at the grace of God and his mercy? And we look at that and we have to say, man, that's so compelling. That's so beautiful. And that's, I think, one of the signs that you can know that you're a believer. When you look at, at Jesus and you say, not just what can I do to serve you, what can I do to, to understand you more, but you are beautiful. You're amazing, Lord Jesus. And so that's, the, that's where we're to stand amazed. Romans, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 7 speaks about angels who already experience all the, the amazing things that are going on in heaven. You know, you think about it, angels would be hard to impress. They, think of what they've seen. They've seen uh, the children of Israel walk across the Red Sea. They, they've seen Elijah's confrontation with the prophets of Baal. They've seen the resurrection of Jesus. They've seen the, the Holy Spirit be poured out on the day of Pentecost. And yet, what does it say in 1 Peter chapter 1? It says the things that the angels long to look at is the gospel, is Jesus on the cross dying for our sins. That's what, they, that, that's what impresses them more than anything, is what Jesus did for you and me on the cross. Uh, with all of that, one day we're going to see Jesus and all of his beauty and all of his grace. And, and I know that we will all stand amazed and worship God for what he's done. And so God's goal after our salvation, after we come to know him and are saved from our sins, is that he be the sole object of our faith and our hope and our love. That he be first place in our lives, that we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And don't worry about things down here. They'll be added to us. And that, we get, that God gets all the glory so that whether we eat or whether we drink, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, we do all for the glory of God. And then in verses 33 to 36, Paul writes this hymn of praise to God where we see that God's wisdom is accessible to us. That's number four. You know, as with some of, of you, uh, and back in October, uh, to, we were in the, on a tour in the steps of the Apostle Paul, and one of the places we went was the Sistine Chapel. And to look at that, it was just absolutely amazing. Michelangelo painted this as an expression of praise to God. It took him nearly five years to complete. One Christian art expert made this comment. He said, from God's creation of the world to Adam and Eve's expulsion from Eden to Noah's Ark, Michelangelo painted some of the most dramatic and inspiring representations of Genesis ever imagined. And there's so much more to his masterpiece other than just the book of Genesis. And what the Apostle Paul has done in this hymn is like Michelangelo, he is pointing us to Jesus with this hymn that he wrote. So after Paul meditates on all that, that God has done with Israel, all his amazing plan of salvation to reach out to the Gentiles, 
Paul finds himself compelled by the love of God to express that in this beautiful hymn. And, and as we look at it and study about God every time, it should naturally lead us to worship God. I, I like the way one person said it. They said, theology should always become doxology. It should always become praise. Our God took Israel's downfall and transformed it into universal redemption for everyone. Uh, God's purposes will always be fulfilled. Uh, in, in the previous verses that we looked at about Israel, we saw that Israel resisted God's rule. But God overruled the bad decisions that Israel made to open this up for all of us. And so the best, and this is on your outline, and the deepest worship is grounded in who God is, not in what he's done. What he's done is important to praise God for. But the deepest and the best worship is grounded in who God is. Sometimes we find praising God is easy when he's done something amazing for us, when we have good health or when we've kept our job, when a cancer screening comes back negative or when you get accepted into a school that you wanted to go to or you get a bonus at work or there's layoffs going on and you don't get laid off. Those are great things and we should indeed be thankful to God for everything he gives us because in those experiences we do get glimpses of, of God's love for us. And because of those things, again, Paul just goes into this eruption of praise. He just can't contain himself. Verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. And that last phrase, his paths beyond tracing out, means that sometimes God's good work in your life will be untraceable. It will be unnoticeable. That means that you have to learn to praise God even when you can't see what he's doing. And you don't understand it. It's beyond you. You're confused by it. And let me just say this. If your joy is dependent on knowing every detail of God's plan for your life, you'll be miserable. It just won't happen. We trust him. We worship him even when we don't get what's happening even if we don't understand because our lives are in his hand. And then look at verse 34. Paul explains this with two rhetorical questions. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? In other words, we can never completely know the mind of God and the way he thinks. We can get glimpses of it. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, we have the mind of Christ. How do we have his mind? By knowing his word. That's why we invest in his word. And James says that we can ask him wisdom for our choices, the choices we make. Remember this, God wants you to know his will more than you want to know it. <clears throat> so when you ask God for wisdom, which is seeing life from God's point of view, that's what wisdom is, he'll, he says he'll give it to you and he'll give it liberally. And so we anchor ourselves in who God is and that's the best praise. And we're not talking about how many favors God has done for you, whether it's giving you a good job or whatever, good health. But who God is, is, is best known by, by his decision to send us Jesus, to, to send us that for our salvation. And that, consider the beauty of God and who he is. And of course, we're thankful for every blessing, but who God reveals himself in, in, in the cross 
is especially important. You know, someone said, if you can't comprehend God's mind, at least you can trust his heart. The best insight into who God is is the life of Jesus. It's through Jesus in, in Luke 15 that we learn that God is a, a loving father who wants all of his, every one of his lost sons or daughters to come back to him. It's through Jesus that we learn that he cares about everything that happens to us. He's an ever watchful father in Matthew 10. That at the tomb of, the, of, of Lazarus that he weeps for his friends in their pain. Lazarus had a lot of great friends and one of, the best, one of his best friends was Jesus. And then in the cross, we see how God has taken the deepest and cruelest evil plots of men and turned it to what, something that transforms all of life through Jesus. And then verse 35, who has ever given to God that God should repay them? Uh, our salvation, we should look at it in, in awe. It isn't, it's, it's the most out, unbelievable thing, this outpouring of God's grace to me. I remember when I first became a Christian, it was like, why me, Lord? Why me, not all my friends who were also so lost? Many of them ended up coming to faith in Christ. But as I think about Paul's explosion of praise here, I think it's interesting that some of the words that he says are unwords, like unsearchable, unfathomable, untraceable. It's words that highlight, if you will, God's utter otherness. You know, A.W. Tozer has some interesting thoughts here, and I just want to read a quote from him, which I think is insightful. He says, to say that God is infinite is to say that he is measureless. Measurement is the way created things have of accounting for themselves. It describes, though, limitations and imperfections, and it cannot apply to God. We, we have measurements for liquid and energy, he says, and sound and light, numbers, and we try to measure abstract qualities. We say someone has great or little faith or high or low intelligence. And then he goes on and he finishes, is, not that, is, it, is it not plain that all of this does not and cannot apply to God? It, it's the way we see the work of his hands. Nothing in God is less or more or large, or small. He is what he is in himself, Tozer concludes, without qualifying thought or word. He is simply God. That's who he is, infinite, way beyond us. And then in verse 36, for from him and through him and for him are all things. Uh, boy, he's just exhausted all thought and having considered all of this, God's plan for the, the Jews, Paul ends this, his journey where he begins, from him, meaning God is the source of all that exists. And through him, God sustains all things and gives everything purpose and movement. And to him or for him, that means that God is the purpose for which all things exist. That's why we exist, all things. All things, that means includes your current situation. Maybe it's uh, the joy of a family or the loss of employment. Or maybe it includes your promotion or a sickness that you're going through. Or the blessing of family. Or the hard relationships that you have to deal with. All those things come from God. He is the sustainer of life. He is the purpose for which they exist. And it turns us to living and pointing to his power and his glory in our lives. And then Paul concludes with, to him be the glory forever. Amen.
He's our ultimate devotion. To, to this end, to the end of the glory of God, we should be raising our families for the glory of God. We, we should focus all we have on, on, on the glory of God. And, and to this end, we should live our entire lives for the glory of God. I don't know if you've ever heard of Florence Chadwick. She was the first woman to swim across the English Canal. Uh, she wanted to swim from Catalina to California, to the mainland. And on the day she set out to do it, 26 miles versus the 23 miles across the English Channel, it was super foggy uh, in Catalina and all across Southern California. And she gets in a swim. She's preceded by her mother, who's in a small boat, who's kind of watching over her. And um, at one point, she says, I can't finish. I can't do it. I'm just at the end of everything. I'm exhausted. So they, they pull her in the boat. And just, it was after that she found out she was only a half mile away from finishing. So two months later, she says, I'm going to try it again. And not only did she finish, but she beat the record previously held by a man by two and a half hours. But what was unusual is that second day was also super foggy. She tried, and so people asked her, they said you couldn't, she said you couldn't finish because it was too foggy, so what was the problem today, or how did you finish today? It was just as foggy, if not foggier. And what she said is this, she said, I, you know, the first time I could have made it if I had just seen the coastline. But now, this time, mentally, I was ready. It's simple. I kept a vision in my mind of the coastline of California. And that's what worship is. Worship is keeping a vision in our mind of who God is and living for him. And so we open our eyes to his inexhaustible wisdom. And that's the vision that gives us the power to live the Christian life, to be obedient to him. And that, so I would say we need to ask God to open our eyes so that we can trust him. Even when the circumstances around us seem extremely murky and we can't seem to see anything. And so how is, right now, I think we could say that, you know what, life is so correct, life is so right when theology becomes doxology. When we hear this and we're pointed up in praise to who God is, and for his love, amazing love for us, his amazing grace. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we know that the chief end of man is to glorify you and enjoy you forever. That's what we want to do. We want hearts to be, our hearts to be hearts of worship. Your faithfulness, Father, is so far beyond what we ever deserve. What an amazing plan of redemption you've given us. And we are in awe that you brought us to yourself, both Jew and Gentile. But beyond our hearts, we want our lives to be lived in worship for you. If there's anyone here, Lord, who doesn't know you, they can't live for your glory. And so I pray that you would draw them to yourself right now. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. And so from the end of Romans 15, I pray that God the source of hope will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you. And uh, please don't leave before you introduce yourself to some people that you're sitting there. Thanks. Thanks.